Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Edward Assel, and we're still working remotely. It looks like that's not going to end anytime soon uh, with the coronavirus spreading the way it is in uh, the United States. So today, remotely, we've got Ryan Burke with Angry Orchard uh, joining us. And uh, how are you doing, Ryan? All things considered, I'm doing all right. Well, you just said that we have a mutual friend, uh, Josh Hambright, who was actually on the show. He was one of the earliest episodes. I think he might have been like episode four or something like that when he was still brewing with Central State. He's a good guy, and I really liked what he was doing there and the whole cool ship concept and all that stuff I thought was was really awesome. Yeah, obviously the pandemic's definitely hurt all that, and he's moved on to other brewery and such. But, you know, we haven't really discussed cider all that much on the show. And I've listened to a couple other interviews with you, and it's just, it's a really deep topic. So I want to jump right in because there's a lot to learn, especially for me. And so hopefully some of our listeners will get a lot out of it as well. I guess before we kind of get deep, you know, explain what it is that you do for Angry Orchard. I'm the head cider maker there. That that means a lot of things. You know, we obviously have our national brand and our flagship ciders, which are distributed around the country. We have some ciders that are sort of static, like Crisp, our actual flagship, you know, that we tweak here and there. And we're always looking for like efficiency improvements and maybe a change in apples because of, you know, the seasonality of the apple industry. And so that is sort of like a slow moving, continuous work, always trying to tweak it and make it better. And then we're also always innovating in that space as well. So we'll add new ciders to that portfolio sort of once a year, sometimes more. It kind of depends what's going on. So I work with a whole team around all of that, just sort of innovating in that space, new product development. And then we have in uh, upstate New York, Walden, New York, we have our orchards, and our cider house where people can actually interact with our brand and our people and, um, you know, taste cider that they would normally not get their hands on that we don't really distribute. That's always fun. It's an unbelievable place. I try to always speak about it from the outside, which is sort of tough to do because I'm very much a part of it and it is a part of me, but I just look at it kind of on a bird's eye view and I'm like, holy shit, this place is just like unbelievable ode to what cider can be. And I, I mean that as someone that is there and like trying to make it look that way, but then as a cider drinker um, and just like craft drinks appreciator, looking at it from a distance and being like, wow, there's nothing really like it in the cider world. And it sort of, it sort of like leans on like a winery, what we like imagine as a winery and with winery sort of like tastings, but then it also has like sort of the brewing, the, the brewery side of the thing where you can pony up to a bar and you can drink cider by the pint. Uh, but you can also be drinking it, you know, out of a wine glass and we have a barrel aging program. And then, you know, we're like a winery. We are, we have 60 acres of, of fruit growing there and our cidery is, you know, right in the middle of all of that. And so it's very sort of, you know, the way I imagine like Cantillon once was with cherry trees all around. And like, that's the way I, I like to talk about it and think about it. And, and I, and I use that as a way to kind of not put any constraints on what it is so that we can kind of make it whatever we feel like it should be. And so I do a lot of whatever it takes to do what I just said. <laughs> right. I mean, we're talking, you know, you've kind of you already touched on it. There's like a romance to cider. And I think especially in the States, right, because we have kind of this special connection to apples, uh, you know, American is apple pie, those sorts of things. And but it's it's a historically important beverage. I mean, it's going back to the founding of the country, right? Like when apple trees were planted. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the historical uh, importance and, and how that kind of developed at the, you know, I guess, 240 years ago when the, when the country was really kicking off? I, w I wonder if the saying was as American as grape pie, if we would have like an easier <laughs> path 
to getting people to understand what you just said. You know, it's, it's like for some of what gets in the way for cider is it's access at the grocery store as an eating thing as a as a lunchbox thing as a pie thing um, where it's like not that you don't eat grapes of course people eat grapes but it doesn't it, like wine just has this history and this way of asserting itself where like people understand that separation whereas like cider they don't necessarily understand the separation because of the word i think a lot of the time right and it, it, and we have to call it hard cider nowhere else calls it hard cider so so pointed, pointing at it, your question, um, you know, there was a time when it was just called cider and not hard cider. And that was in the early years of the U.S. Um, it's clearly a European tradition. It came over with Europeans. Um, they planted apples for the express purpose of making cider. Less eating apples. Um, apples at the time were not the, you know, they didn't taste or look or feel the way apples as we understand them at the grocery store do now, right? They didn't, they weren't built to keep forever on a grocery store shelf. They really were, you'd eat what you could eat and then the rest would go to cider. And a lot of the time those apples are going expressly for cider. Well, it's interesting you brought that up because in the grocery stores now we see pretty much what three apples, right? Like red, delicious, golden, delicious, and granny Smith. That's pretty much all we see. That's what everybody associates with apples. Uh, in the U.S., but you know, I, I kind of liken it to you know the wine industry. Like a lot of the apples that you use, or that have historically been used, um, that have kind of been bred out a little bit. It's, it's like bananas, right? Like I mean, we're all eating the exact same monoculture crop of banana, and if anything ever hits that, we're all screwed. There will be no more bananas. Yeah. But um, all those um, apples that you know make really great cider aren't necessarily the apples that we would want to eat anyhow. No, definitely. They're, they're every apple you can make into cider, right? Every apple is fermentable. It's a simple sugar. It's not like brewing. There's nothing really left over. There's nothing complex about the sugars. And so yeast, basically any yeast, I don't want to say any yeast in case I like get checked and some nerd is <laughs> yeah, like, right. well, actually, uh, but more oh, or there less, will be. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I've already, I, I get in trouble on this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> But all right, let's say most yeast can ferment most apples, right? There's just, there's nothing really complex about it. Sometimes there's sorbitol and that'll get left over as sugar, but unfermentable sugar. Because it's so simple to do that, you could turn any apple into cider. Now that's fine, but like the three you mentioned and and some others like Gala um, that, that are on the grocery store shelf, you know, you can ferment them, you can make alcohol out of them. But once you strip away the sugar, there's really, you know, there's not much there. Maybe there's some and so you get alcohol by erasing the sugar, and you probably have some acidity because most grocery store apples do have like kind of a crisp acidity, although not the kind of level that I find to be particularly interesting most of the time. Yeah, they do seem very kind of one dimensional and imagining taking, you know, a red delicious in particular and, and trying to make a cider out of it. It's just, you know, yeah, you're going to kind of ferment all that sweetness out of it and then what, there's nothing left. It would be like making wine out of uh, Concord grapes, you know? Yeah, it's, exa it's exactly the same thing. To be fair, could you take a red delicious? Let's stick with that one because we know it's the least delicious. <laughs> and let's We're say destroying we the red delicious industry yeah, right now. Right. <laughs> all, all of my three let's listeners. We did, well, I hope that they want to try to make cider and I hope they don't go after a red delicious, but let's say that's the only thing they had. And like, so I don't want to dissuade anyone. If that's all you got, then, you know, work with it. So it's not like you can't 
make something like decent to drink, but I would encourage anyone that's interested to kind of look beyond that. And so there are apple varieties that are sort of of the culinary variety. They're generally not the main grocery store apple varieties, but there are varieties that we used to grow in mass that sort of fall out of fashion. Just like anything, apples are in, in and out of fashion too. You know, Granny Smith is hot right now. Five, five, 10 years from now, probably no one will eat the Granny Smith apple. They disappear and they, you know, I grew up eating Macintosh. Nobody eats Macintosh anymore. You know, we have some Macintosh trees are just getting torn out of the ground because they don't command the, the price point and they don't have the snap that the Granny Smith does. And so there are varieties that are, that once were eating apples that do taste fantastic that I love to eat and also make cider out of. We sort of call those heirloom apples or, you know, whatever you want to, you know, sub in for the word heirloom sort of older varieties that are interesting and have elevated acidity. And we do like to use them for cider making. And then there's the next, the next sort of subset, the sort of European varieties that are, you know, we call bittersweet and bitter sharp, bitter being tannin, you know, sweet being sugar and sharp being acid. And so they have really elevated amounts of other things. So when you ferment those apples down, the sugar still goes away like everything else but the tannin is left over, the high acid is left over. And now, now you're talking about something that's really interesting, fun to work with, makes cider more exciting, makes it better to blend with, gives it like more staying potential in a barrel, for instance, makes it stand up better to food. Yeah, those are the apples that we used to grow in mass here, that they've been growing in mass in you know Spain, England, France for generations, and that we as an industry and we as Angry Orchard are, are definitely trying to bring back to the forefront of cider drinking. Yeah, I find that you know the supermarket situation as as it grows and the, we have these superstores, everything kind of gets homogenized and it does kind of wreak havoc on uh, agriculture and horticulture in those sorts of ways. We're talking about all these different strains of apples, strains. I, <laughs> sorry, varieties. So, yes, <laughs> it's like <laughs> sorry, just had a different conversation before we right. met today. <laughs> yeah. Well, what the fuck, man? I should have been on that call too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so. Where does one learn this? I mean, how did you get into cider making? Because, you know, this is not something that I grew up with. I don't really recall. Uh, I do recall there being apple trees around when I was a kid. And you don't really see it, uh, many people like planting apple trees or in their yards any, any longer. But I mean, you know, you grew up in kind of semi-rural New York. Very rural New York. Okay, there you go. I haven't um, been, so. Close. I mean, not quite the ruralist, but pretty damn rural. It, basically equidistant between Rochester and Syracuse. Um, I, a town I grew up in is called Williamson. There's not a lot going on. Um, that's, that's changed as, um, we've gone from being a dry town since prohibition in the two thousands. So there's like finally restaurants and bars and stuff, but when uh, I was wait, how long, that, how long was it dry from prohibition until 2004 or five? Wow. So you grew up with, I don't want to say no access to alcohol, but very difficult access to alcohol. Yeah. I mean, the town, of course, the town's next door, you know, had um, certainly, so it wasn't like it was impossible, but it, it doesn't like change the fact that that was like something I knew. I knew about prohibition at a very, very young age. Um, and that matters uh, when you know what to rally against. <laughs> right. You, yeah. you know what I'm saying? You start to build your ideals. You start to think about who you are when you're like, you know what? Fuck that. You start to Figure out who you are as a person. Like, and yeah, and you know, as an angsty teenager, you know, when you're oh, looking yeah. for something to rail against, I mean, they're just handing it to you on a platter, you know? Exactly. Yes. They like, I mean, I owe, I should write, well, I guess everyone that like did that probably long gone, but as I say, I should write a thank you note. But, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, so we growing up like knew about this. This was like 
something that you talked you talked about or we knew about. This is this dry town. So not only was it a dry town, it was also more or less just an apple orchard, or I shouldn't say just an apple orchard. Uh, I think one of the most significant plantings of apples in the country. Um, and it, and I, I don't think this is true anymore, but when I was growing up, it was like the, the largest contiguous planting of apples in the country. And now the West Coast has sort of taken, you know, Washington has taken over as the number one apple producing state over New York. So that sort of swung, I mean, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, so you can just think about it. It was just like apples as far as you could possibly see. And it's a great terroir for growing really crisp, um, really high acid mineral driven apples. Um, and one of the reasons is it's right along the coast of Lake Ontario. So we have a really long growing season there. So with the, the warm air comes off the, I'm drinking a cider, um, as the warm air comes off the, uh, off the lake, we have a season that goes a little bit longer. So you can leave apples on the trees a little bit longer. You can also grow varieties that are a little bit more cold tolerant. And a lot of those varieties are those interesting early American heirloom apples, um, like nor Northern Spy and things like that, that we as cider makers are kind of bringing back and are interested in, but for, for a long time now, just sort of been, you know, commodity pressed into Mott's apple juice because in my hometown is also where Mott's is, has their, their, their headquarters. So basically all these apples were there and fed through Duffy Mott's. Was there any um, like impact on the like orchards and, and the trees during prohibition? Um, obviously there was a lot of other, you know, desired effects, but I can only imagine a lot of, uh, folks also uh, making, you know, backyard cider during Prohibition. Well, yeah, and backyard cider in 1999, too. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> um, hey, you got to yeah, learn so your craft somewhere. <laughs> right. You know, sort of what I, what I was getting at is, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's great apples. There's not, there wasn't a lot of access to what people wanted, and there was a tradition of cider making, is a tradition of cider making there. And um, actually... Growing up, sort of exploring all of what I just said, one of my best friends, his name's Jake Lagner, um, has opened a cidery in my hometown, uh, which is really cool to just think about it, like looking back on life and being like, when we were teenagers trying to figure out what the hell we wanted to do at Williamson Senior High School, they weren't like, you guys should be cider makers. But, <laughs> right. um, you know, 20 years later, whatever, it's longer than that. I know 27 years later, 29 years later, you know, here we both are in, in very different positions in different places, but both working in this medium that like touched us in like a way when we were growing up that made us feel like we were from where we were from. Um, it was like a, and I didn't know it then, you know, I had no idea. In fact, then I did everything I could to like get to Rochester and then get to New York city for college. Like I had to get into the city like everything was about like skateboarding and method man and blunts and forties and city, 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 Zoo York. Like all I cared about was like New York city and I had to get there. And, and I, I lived like that for years out of high school and like into, into college and beyond. Um, it got me into sh Chicago eventually. And now I'm living in rural New York making fucking cider. <laughs> I, yeah. I kind of see how that circle comes around. Uh, well, you, I, I did listen to a different interview with you a little bit uh, on the speakeasy. And, you know, we've talked about Souther and with Souther on the show numerous times. Um, and, and you actually kind of, it seems like in Chicago, you really started to get um, the culinary industry and the connections between that and beverage and pairing kind of got its hooks into you. Oh yeah, for sure. I heard that you kind of were with a group that um, was doing dinners and pairings. And I mean, that would have been pretty early on um, at a time when people weren't paying attention to pairing. 
Yeah, man, full nerd. Um, it was like I I went one day. I went to Whole Foods, and they had like a test kitchen there. And there was I was already way I was like nerd on craft beer, nerd on home brewing, um, and I just like that those. I don't. Sometimes someone has to tell you what the hell is going on, right? Like I didn't. I just wasn't thinking about beer in that way at that time or cider in that way. Like I knew, of course, like new wine and food was a thing, but it was like as lame as it sounds now, 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago, like I just wasn't, it just wasn't what I was thinking about. And I walked in and I went to this, it was like, I, I wish I could remember what brewery was there. I, I can't for the life of me remember anymore, but it was a pairing dinner. And this dude, Juan Kim, the chef in Chicago, who at the time was like, you know, a test kitchen chef at Whole Foods was like, was doing this dinner. And I, so I was beer pairing dinner. It was probably like five bucks or something. I was in college. So it was like five bucks is good for beer and dinner. And I went and that was it. That was like the moment where I was like, holy shit. And I kept going to those dinners and it was really Juan's idea to do this, this like homebrew pairing thing. And he, you know, I just got to talking to him because I, would go to these dinners and he was like, Oh, you should, you know, I think I probably like brought some beer by and he tasted it and was like, it's legit enough. And we started doing these events. Um, he invited me to be a part of this. So and, you got involved you know, with homebrewing while you're in Chicago or before, before then in, in college, but that's when I like met people who were like heavy beer nerds. Goose Island. That was a time. There. That was a time, definitely, because the same thing was in indie. You know, that was a time when like the homebrew community was just starting to have, I guess, the the technology to reach out and find one another a little bit easier than it had been prior. And I mean, we had similar groups here. We actually had a homebrew shop um, in indie called Great Fermentations. It's still there, but you know, it it gave everybody access, and so everybody quickly, knew, you know, became friends. And, and that similar kind of thing happened to your group. Yeah, man. And it was just like, it was very, you know, we were lucky to have, honest, to have Goose Island and like the ability to use their, um, their space. And they were like very welcoming to the homebrew community. And we had, um, you know, brew and grow there. That was like, if you wanted whatever the newest thing you could do in homebrewing, brew and grow had it. Uh, and they had, um, you know, someone who's still friends of mine is Adam Vavrick, who was just like, he was a sales guy at homebrew at home at brew and grow at the time you know and like 20 years later he's still a good friend of mine he's still in the industry he's still doing his thing you know like we met friends that like changed my life and at that time i had no idea what was happening but like i was going really deep on all these things and as we built this community um i was just like i knew i was doing the wrong thing in the other minutes that i had to be alive i was just like this other shit is not what I want to do. And I was just like driving it. How do I get into this industry? How do I become a part of it? Um, and you know, over time it, it, it worked out. Um, so at what like, point did that like, that, did that like connect to, so you're, you're homebrewing, you're hanging out with guys that are, you know, uh, kind of learning the craft, getting the new tools. Uh, where, where did the hop skip and a jump come over to when you made that connection to like where you grew up, what you were, you know, experiencing at home and then what you were doing, uh, in college. Yeah. So I, uh, was volunteering with slow food. Um, I did a lot of volunteer work with them. Um, yeah. Uh, and, 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 in Chicago, super active board, um, doing a ton of work, like 
doing urban gardening stuff and um, food security work and um, access, like food access, especially to um, communities on the south side, that kind of work. And um, I met through that work, Greg Hall, who was the brewmaster at Goose Island. Um, and I was already like, at that time, to remember, like, there's only, there wasn't that many breweries, right? Like Goose Island was the game in town. And like, there was a couple other craft breweries, but you know, small or startup or it, it hadn't quite in 2006, 2007, it wasn't quite there yet. It hadn't happened in Chicago the way it happened in other places. You, you, you know, so right, we were like, still calling I it was, microbreweries back then, you know, yeah, that craft brewing exactly. wasn't even the, the terminology. Exactly. And they were through um, Slow Food, they were a great partner. So we would end up doing a lot of events in like their dock. Um, and through that, you know, I was just honestly, I was like, just trying to get I would have done anything to work there, right? I would have cleaned anything, I would have pushed anything, or I was just like, trying to get in. But a lot of people were it just like wasn't, it was not happening for me. Um, I like could not get past any gatekeepers. Um, and then <laughs> Then when he left and announced that like the next day when they did like the sale happened and Greg moved on, you know, he's, he's a PR genius to be honest. And he, um, he announced like right away that he was doing the cider thing. I hit him up right. I saw it. I hit him up right away because while I was brewing beer and all that stuff, you know, in that group with all these home brewers, I was also making cider. I was the only one showing up with cider at that, at that event. Cause I had, like, I had this connection to it. Um, and I wrote him and I was like, Hey, you know, I, I grew up this way. I know th these things about apples and whatever. And then ultimately, um, I ran into him at an event. Um, and I, I was just like, went right up to him and I was like, Hey, I'm the guy that emailed you. Here's my background. And he was like, okay, come, you know, come by the office at the time. We, all we had was an office in Chicago in Roscoe village. We didn't have anything. He was it come by. Um, and so I did, and I had an interview that like, is an interview like style that I carry on to this day. That's like, I like, I read your resume, like, tell me what books you read and what music you listen to. And like, what's your favorite meal and those kinds of conversations. And I was just like, Oh, okay, this is my fucking language. Um, and then he was like, cool. Downstairs is a hand crank press and a bunch of car boys get to work for no money. And I was like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm in it. I'm down. Like I'll do any, like, I want to get into this. and you know, those, those fermentations are the fermentations that became the first cider that we, that we scaled up and launched in the market of Chicago. And, you know, I came on as a full-time cider maker and, you know, eventually the head cider maker there and, and sort of road, road virtues wave until the sale to AB. Sure. It's definitely was an auspicious time to be doing that because ciders, um, definitely kind of having a bit of a, a growth moment at the time, at the moment, uh, back then it was a little bit less. So, um, you know, major brands coming onto market really were it, you know, and we didn't see too much of it kind of growing out. But as you kind of got the actual official job title, did that allow you to like expand your education more? Because I, I hear you talk about all the apples and what we've got coming from Europe. And, and you know, I know everybody uh, likens it very often to brewing beer, um, you know, like, and you came out of the homebrew um, kind of community, but I always feel it's a lot more akin to winemaking because, um, you know, you're, you're actually, you're, you're dealing with fruit, I guess, you know, and like you said, it's, it's sugars that are immediately fermentable. Um, and, and so like with that education, it's, it is almost like, uh, 
learning about all the wine grapes. Like we said earlier, uh, not all, I mean, wine grapes are disgusting to eat. Um, and so a lot of the apples, and I know that you're big on the, you know, the, the, the angry apples, you know, you talk about that and, and the ugly apples can make the, the better ciders. And, and so, I mean, how does that help your education at moving on? Because you definitely have a deep knowledge of all these varieties. Yeah. I mean, I, I did through exposure to cider sort of later on in life is when I started to really understand these other varieties, these European varieties and like, and European cider culture. Um, I definitely like, I had tried ciders from the UK in my twenties that like definitely got like, I was like, Oh, I can do this or, Oh, I want to do this. Um, you know, everyone was like, at that time that was like, you had to like, you know, it's somewhere in like around 2009, you really had to know somebody to drink Cantillon, right? Like you, it, in 2006, it was on the shelf. In 2009, it was in the, in, in the back. And then after that, for a while, it was like, I, you had to buy it on the black market or someone had to go to Belgium. You know, it's like in that moment, I was trying these English ciders that I was like, okay, well, this is very similar to that. Yet this I have access to and it's available to me. Um, and like, I just spent more time with it. Um, but it was like, it is ciders of Oliver's, which is T Tom Oliver's a, a mentor of mine. And, and I, and I think one of, one of the great cider makers, um, I don't think anyone would dispute that. And I would taste what he was doing and I would taste these beers that I was really into and be like, Oh wow. That's, I just actually taste a ton of connection here. Um, and so that got me, okay, how does he do this? And what are the, what, like, this isn't what I'm used to. What are these apple varieties is kind of how I, those questions started to come up. Um, hey, you and, know, you and you had mentioned earlier, you know, some of those with uh, higher tannins, um, you know, which we were familiar with talking about in the wine world as well. And obviously present in anything, but, um, you know, the higher uh, presence of the tannins in those. And it also gives you that preservative effect. So, I mean, you guys do some barrel aging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, fine. getting into those varieties are sort of what led my, like not only my like my interest um but like also like my like where i travel to um and what i'm able to what i'm able who i'm able to meet and what i'm able to eat and and how i'm able to perform in my cellar because those varieties once you get to really know them that's when you that's when you find the freedom but, you know once you once you understand what's in them and you even i mean there's you know six thousand plus apple varieties when you known with names, um, there's certainly more than that. Um, if you understand a few of them really well, then you can start to build like your footprint, your fingerprint. I mean, yeah, the more, you know, the easier it is to be creative, the more risks you can take. Um, and you asked about barrel aging, you know, the way that I do things, a lot of people that are, um, in my cohort think I'm, you know, an idiot or, they don't, they think I'm too risky or they, they're like, well, you work at Angry Orchard, you could take these kind of risks. Those kinds of, you know, conversations I have with friends. I, I generally disagree with all of those statements. I think the more I understand my medium, the more I can push it in certain directions. So when it comes to barrel aging, uh, we have to do it a couple different ways, but the way that I'm, the thing that I'm the most passionate about is, the, is, is aging in sort of neutral, um, generally French oak we're playing around like we're getting comfortable with American Oak right now. Um, but neutral French Oak probably post spirit wine might be fine. Um, you know, it's cool to get Calvados barrels in and apple brandy barrels in for a turn. So we get some impact. But after that, 
I, is that that I still want him around. And you so, know, what does the I'm, French oak bring to the table? Um, you know, versus the American oak. I mean, you've got a tighter grain on the French oak. Yeah, it's just a little bit more subtle. Yeah. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, that's one of my biggest issues with a lot of barrel aged stuff is it just gets to be like a smack in the face, you, you know. <laughs> and cider is just like, you know, cider is not wine. Cider is not beer. Cider is cider. It's not spirits. Um, and it re it acts very differently in a barrel, especially with long term aging. Cider is lower in ABV, you know, than than well most beers that you would lay down in a barrel. Not all barrel. Not all beers. Certainly lower ABV than almost all wines. Let's say most cider is around seven and a half, seven, you know, somewhere between five and eight percent. Um, so you know, you it can certainly be higher, but you lay down an eight ABV cider, um, okay, versus an eight ABV beer. The beer probably is like a stronger, bigger beer, residual sugars. It's probably a darker beer, probably a stout or something. It has like a lot of beef to stand up to the barrel. Okay, well, the cider at eight percent doesn't have any of those things. Um, maybe it has some tannin, but it certainly doesn't have as much tannin as a red wine. Um, and, and so it can't do the same thing in that barrel that other drinks can do. So I've learned to think about it in a different way. And so I, I try not to take any cues from those industries. I think about cider as this very delicate medium. And even when I'm using, you know, bittersweet, you know, bittersweet apples with a ton of tannin, well, a ton of tannin for cider, um, I'm still it's very uh, much about finesse and it's, it, and I want what I get out of a barrel, but I don't want a lot of barrel. Um, I want microoxidation is like for our style of making in New York at, at our cider house, our, our barrels are like, we want microox. So we're very focused on our, um, we're very focused on our environment. So we keep everything in our barrel room, which is an old apple cold storage um, built into the side of a hill, which is, just sick to be able to say that um it's an old it's built out of the stones that are from the orchard when they tilled it to plant the first trees 100 years ago it's You've got like a cider yeah. hobbit house yes it is. yeah exactly it's exactly what it looks like um yeah it is a cider hobbit house and it's it's all it's cold year round we monitor the humidity we control the humidity so we bring in some technology to something that's old um, we put our oak in there and we keep it this constant temperature. Um, we don't top our barrels off. We want, I love sherry. I love evaporative stuff, not necessarily all like very macro oxidized, but micro oxidized and in the temperature and in the humidity that we set um, and with the high tannic apples that we use, as you mentioned, as a preservative, well, the best part of it being a preservative is how long you can push a cider in a barrel without topping it off because of that. And like, I celebrate that thing that is those apples, you know, and I, I, I want that and I, I don't want to avoid it and I want to celebrate it and encourage it. Um, and so I wish people could see the genuine enthusiasm on your face when you talk about <laughs> it. You know, <laughs> uh, I, It's the thing that like, you know, it's the thing that keeps you, wanting to just keep keep at it right and like it's that it, that's for me that's the thing that like besides the people which is the first thing that like this like cider all the amazing people i've met because of getting into what i do all the amazing food that i have eaten alongside of those people and with cider in my hand um the other thing that like just keeps me here and wanting to progress and do better and do more is that 
fairy thing. It's just like, what does this apple do? And what can I do with it by keeping it right there? Like it'll, what it allows me, what this apple allows me to do is the, is, is the clearest way I can put it. So for those of us like me that don't know all that much about apples, in fact, I was actually, um, it's funny that you're on the show this week because I was just looking through um, the possibilities of put a couple apple trees in my yard. I've got some room and, and we were like, well, hell, let's just, let's just do that. Um, but I had heard that, so when you, if you pulled a, a seed out of a, a modern apple, we go to the grocery store and you pull the seed out, you plop it in the ground. We're not really necessarily going to get that back out of the ground, yeah? So, I mean, I, I, explain how that works. I, mean, I guess, you know, that's not clear to me. Yeah, so the the apple seeds will not produce the variety. I mean, I guess anything's possible, but it it will 99.9% of the time, it's impossible for it to produce five new trees of the same variety. So every apple that you've had, that's a named variety, what, how it works is um, people take a, you know, someone, someone has at one point in time grown an apple tree out of a seed and found something that he or she liked. And then they want to reproduce that tree. Okay. Well, you can't plant the seeds to do that. So you take a piece, you cut a piece off of that tree um, and you take the, you take root stock, um, roots, which, you know, have been cut off and grown and cut off and grown. Um, and you take that root stock and you, you more or less take that piece from the other tree and you graft it. So you basically cut a V and, you know, you stick a sharp part into the V and, um, you tape it up and make sure that it doesn't get diseases. And, um, from that root stock will grow that tree that you wanted. And so, so what kind of rootstock are we, are we talking about here? Is there a kind of a common, um, straightforward? Yeah. I mean, it's a rootstock that at this point you would be buying it like out of a nursery, right. Or you'd be getting it from a university and there's all kinds of rootstock, um, you know, breeding programs that go on and the rootstock will change from here to tomorrow. There's they'll, they'll, they'll be new rootstocks and, and, and what they do is control, you know, at the simplest level, what they do is control the size of the tree um and so you know if you think about cider in the olden days you know big old trees 30 foot tall um that you know that's not that's not the way we really grow trees anymore they're very you know, if you see an apple orchard now like a newly planted apple orchard will probably be really close together it'll be on trellises so the difference really you might you might have a variety that was grown 100 years ago on this big old tree but someone has grafted it year on year over and over and grown in a nursery while the varieties have stayed the same rootstocks will change and the way that we grow fruit will change. And so it's the rootstock that's changed to keep the tree at a certain height and width and controls it's, you know, that'll control, uh, it'll control disease. It controls all kinds of things. Certain rootstocks grow really well in certain kinds of soil. So knowing, understanding that side of the, um, the process is, is, it's not, you know, a cider maker doesn't necessarily need to understand that completely or even do that work, but somebody needs to know usually. And certainly there are cider makers that understand it from front, from rootstock to finish cider in your glass. Um, and there's lots of cider makers that, that know that, um, but it isn't necessary. You can also just buy your fruit, but somewhere 
in that apple that you bought, somebody knew what the hell they were doing. And, um, and, and it changed and it changes. And that's sort of the technology of agriculture. Um, you know, that that's interesting. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. So looking back, you know, you said there was a lot more traditionally in history, we've seen a lot more varieties, uh, being grown. And, and we talked about kind of how that's faded away a little bit with the obsession with, you know, a handful of different varieties, but we're now seeing with the like slow food, you know, um, just the kind of whole restaurant movement we've seen in the last decade that's, you know, now on fire. But, uh, you know, like people reaching back and finding, you know, the things that were uh, kind of being grown or made prior to prohibition. Uh, and so, but there's, somebody has to kind of get that kickstarted. So where did, where did that fire get lit or when did that get lit? When did people really kind of take a look back and say, hey, what the fuck happened here? We don't have any of this stuff any longer because it takes a decade, you know, before you can get fruit off of a tree. So it's, it's gotta be a forward looking plan. So when did we start seeing these varieties popping back into the, the social consciousness? Yeah. So, I mean, there's certainly people that have been thinking about it oh, since, since the time of prohibition and when we lost a lot of this biodiversity, um, I would say from like a, a commercial standpoint, right. One of the earliest people to think about is Steve Wood. He's a cider maker um, up in New Hampshire. He has a label called Farnham Hill and an orchard called Poverty Lane. We sort of, as a cider community, recognize him as like a godfather of our Amer the American cider industry. Um, it makes amazing sort of acid-driven, um, well-balanced of tannin um, ciders that he grows um, by him himself, as well as a collective of growers in that area. He really pushed for like the concept of a great terroir for... Um, the right apple varieties. And so, you know, so I, I don't know the exact date that he started to put the trees in, let's say late seventies, early eighties. Um, I might, my phone might ring and he might scream at me. Um, cause I didn't get the date right or something, but, um, he's one of the first people. I mean, that's pretty forward looking, you know, at that time, that's still, you know, again, it's a very long-term. Yeah. Plan. And he, 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 you know, pushed for these varieties. And like at that time, um, you know, these varieties weren't really available. And so as we talked about grafting before, somebody needed to get the graft wood and start planting it. And like, you didn't go to, you didn't call up the nursery and say, let me get some Davinette and some Yarlington mill at that time, like I can do today. Um, in the late seventies, early eighties, somebody, and I don't want to name who, just in case there's some, you got to stay. Yeah, well, in case there's <laughs> some kind of way to like, in case that seven years thing doesn't work on graft wood, you know, somebody, <laughs> right. somebody had to go to Europe to get these varieties on and bring the sticks back to the U S and start growing them. Um, and you know, I, I look up to that person. Um, and, 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 and that, per, and he, along with, um, a guy named Ian, that's dedication. Yeah, that's dedication. You know, like if you're going to, if you're going to smuggle something across an international border, I don't know if, uh, Apple cuttings are high on the list. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, and then another, another guy named Ian Merwin, who is a professor at Cornell. He, he has his own um, cidery now in the Finger Lakes, um, Black Diamond. He was a horticulturist and pomologist for Cornell. He's, he's recently retired, um, but he was a part of a lot of that early work too. So these guys saw something and were bringing his varieties in. Um, uh, there's a few cider makers in on the East Coast that were like a part of sort of a part of that um, unit. Elizabeth Ryan is another one. Um, she's a she's uh, a, has a, a business called Hudson Valley Cider, Hudson Valley Farmhouse Cider. They're still in existence. They make you know really orchard based, really cool cider. So these, there were these people who had this vision sort of through the 80s and early 90s, um, 
and, and were pushing like varietal driven sort of wine like ciders. Um, and that was sort of the, well, that's funny you say yeah. that because, you know, when we think about, you know, I'm hearing you mention all of these people and where they're based. And, you know, when we think of the U S you know, uh, we've got all of our wine appellations in the West Coast, but I think, you know, people don't pay as much attention to the cider scene or, the, or where the apples are. And that's really driven, you know, by the, the Northeast um, and where you're located. And it's it's interesting because, you know, as we are moving forward um, and you are getting as geeky as you are about these apples, I mean, it you're talking about the terroir, right? So we're talking about the terroir of you know, the, the, the Northeast United States, New England area, New York. And it, you know, so I mean, you, a Washington cider is not necessarily going to take taste like a New York no, cider. No, far from it. Um, and it's, it's, you know, what's, it's easy to say that and harder to like show that. And we're such a, you know, we're such a small industry, um, compared to say beer, spirits or wine. And, um, but we have a lot of really dedicated, passionate people who are just nerd about apples. And I love it. And uh, there are people, a woman named Darlene Hayes, a guy named Dan Pucci, who used to be um, the bartender at, or manager, I don't know what his title was, but at Wasail, which is a New York City cider bar we had for a while, which is magnificent. Um, he's, he has a book that's, you know, coming out, not to like, announced that but he has a book that's coming out soon um and a lot of it's about the history of cider and cider apples and these guys are doing studies and like an apple grown in new york state the same variety then grown in california and like and like we're all set like they're calling us up and saying hey send us your newtown pippin cider and so the newtown pippin apple which is a new york state variety founded in queens um along the newtown creek and it's an apple that we really celebrate and is on um, on the slow food arc of taste, um, which is like just as uh, something that I love to celebrate. It's a variety that used to be prolific and now is just sort of used in the cider industry, but people grow it across the country. And so these guys who aren't even in the professional cider making industry are asking everyone to send them their ciders of this particular variety. And we all do the whole industry does. And then they're sending them out and it'll get analysis on everything and see acid levels, tannin levels, and then producing all that information and showing it back to us as the industry and being like, this apple grows well, you know, this apple grows well across the country. Here's how it differs in all these different places. And so we can like finally start to think about our industry, like what it is, which is very, you know, in, it can be so many things. It can be Angry Orchard Crisp flagship cider. It can be a you know cider made in the city of Seattle with hops in it or mangoes in it, and it can be also a terroir driven, varietal specific uh, cider that we can like we can celebrate um, because of where it's grown and how it was grown. And we're a long way away from anyone giving a fuck about that. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, we have to. We must tell that story. We have to get that out there. It should be out in front of everyone. And I hope that everyone that makes cider, you know, finds a way to get involved in that part of it. Because you see a lot of the cider that's, you know, that's sold doesn't necessarily represent those things. You know, like I certainly make cider that isn't terroir driven, but I also make cider that is terroir driven. And like, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a dummy to the fact that like the most, terroir driven three-year age micro oxidative pet nat thing that i do 
is the cider that's going to keep the lights on for us. It just, of course, isn't, you know? And so I'm lucky that I get to play in a space where I can serve my cider drinking community, what, you know, across a whole spectrum. I can, I can, I can get them all kinds of, you know, and a lot of people, you know, most of the cider that's drunk is Angry Orchard Crisp in the country, right? And so I'm so lucky to get to serve those people. And I do with pride and I do with passion. And I'm always trying to make that cider and those ciders that sort of fall around that cider better than the last time I made it or better than the person who was making it before me. Um, and then I can also serve, you know, the nerdiest person with something that I put I put years of work into that's probably more like a $30 bottle of cider and requires a conversation, you know? Well, I think that's kind of usually the path that people take, right? I mean, it's, you get started in something and the more interested you get, you wanted to get the more esoteric and start to kind of feel out, um, you know, what's happening on the other side of the edge. And, and so, and I'm particularly just really obsessed with any sort of uh, spirit or um, fermented beverage that, uh, is terroir driven because it's just something that really kind of brings you to that place. You know, when I drink an agricole rum, like I just, I'm taken back to Martinique, you know, if you're drinking a uh, California cab or something, I mean, you really feel like you're in Napa. So it's like when you, we haven't got to that point, like you said, in the U S like I couldn't taste and be like, Oh my God, this is the, this is straight up a Washington cider. But you know, you know, in addition to, to that, I mean, another thing that feeds into their terroir uh, of the apples uh, and how they taste and how they're grown is ex how they're grown. So are you involved in like the orchard management? Uh, because is, is it is it similar to vineyard management? Do you have to worry about the canopy? How long the fruit is hanging on the trees? You know, uh, you're obviously you're looking at sugar levels uh, for fermentable sugars. You know, can, can you talk about a little bit about orchard management? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we so we have a we have a farm manager and we're lucky. So we bought that property in 2014. It was already planted, you know, it'd been planted for a hundred. Everyone always likes to say a hundred year orchard. And I'm always like, well, okay. Six years later, we're still saying a hundred year orchard. Okay. Isn't it a hundred and six year old orchard now? <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So it's around, you know, somewhere around a hundred years. Uh, our farm manager's name is Jeff Chris. His family has been on this farm for a couple generations he took it over in this in the 60s or 70s and replanted it as a as a 20 year 20 something year old and so when we bought the property they were selling it off it would have been turned into condos or snapped together houses or whatever and we sort of bought it out from underneath that and saved this orchard um, and so while while Jeff thought he was getting out of this orchard in fact we have kept him in it um, and he stayed on to help us transition what was those grocery store apple varieties into um, the sort of more interesting varieties that we're talking about. So we're really lucky to have somebody that's a generational orchardist and has kids and their kids have kids um, to be our partner in managing this orchard for the next, you know, several generations, I hope. Yeah, any sort of management of a property like that, it, it takes so much. And that's why, you know, I, I asked if you guys had anything to do with it because, you know, uh, you know, obviously in the wine world, you see a lot of people just buying the grapes from, from the uh from the farmers. And so obviously, you know, not everybody would have the capability to have control all means of production. Um, and that having that orchard, that's a fantastic. Yeah, we do. We do. And like, you know, it's fun because Jeff, you know, Jeff's an older gentleman. Um, he's certainly set in his ways, uh, but he's, he's sharp as a tack and he loves the challenge. It took him about a year for me to like really convince him of why it was awesome and why it made sense and why, and it looked like how he could participate in this growing industry. Now he's full in, his kids are full in. Um, and 
you know, we work together, Jeff and I work together on how the orchard is managed and how it's harvested. Um, and I'm really, I'm really lucky to be able to have access to somebody that knows so much more than I could ever know. Um, I, and so that's like, so when, when do you guys typically see harvest? I mean, when, when are you pulling fruit off the trees? It depends. Usually it's an October to November, like mid November exercise, depending on the variety, some stuff. It, so it's happening now we're done. We're, we are done now. Um, we could be still harvesting, but we had a really warm summer. Things came, things got ripe and came off the tree faster than we had expected. Um, you know, not crazy. It doesn't like, Did, how does that, does that affect what's going to be come out as the end product when you have to harvest early like that? Um, it can, yes, I, it, it, I, I, so on our orchard at Walden, most of the fruit we have is traditional, like bittersweet, bitter sharp, the high tannic, um, apples. They generally are harvested a bit earlier than some of the high acid varieties. We don't have a ton. We have some high acid varieties. We don't have a ton. The best, from in my opinion, the best high acid apple varieties will be harvested around right now. And in the last week, they'll be able to develop a little bit longer to fuller maturity on the tree. Um, so if you can be picking around this time, then I, that's like, that's going to be a vintage year. That's going to be a perfect year. And we do some like single variety, high acid, sort of heirloom, like the new Tom Pippin apple that I mentioned. We do a vintage of that every year that it's worth it. Um, this year, not so much. We've had years where it's like, well, it tastes vintage worthy. Um, and we, and we'll, and we'll lay it down, you know, method champion. When it, when we get that year where it's like, okay, this is pristine. Um, a lot of those varieties though, when it comes to the higher acid varieties, the longer holding varieties. So like where we are, you know, it's not like, you know, we're an hour and a half from New York city. So we're like about an hour and a half from the ocean, you know, which I always forget. Like I live next, I live near <laughs> <Right>. the ocean <laughs> it, and the East coast is just like, not the same thing. And I guess if I was like, like one of those guys that like surfs the great lakes or something, it would be it just like, <laughs> man, you know what? Actually the guy that did a lot of the carvings that are behind me yeah, right now, one of those guys, uh, that's his nickname, the lake, lake okay. surfer. And he's in fucking Milwaukee. He's insane, yeah. man. That water is so cold, but he loves it, man. He loves to get dudes. out there and surf it. <laughs> <laughs> he is. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you just like, think about it, but it, the, you know, up where I'm from, where you get that really nice, warm, warm air off the lake, that's where a lot of those varieties are. So like for me, as a, as a person who both grows and buys apples, I don't, if I know that in upstate New York, up, further upstate from where I am is where the best high acid varieties grow. Well, then why would I, would I, would I, why would I grow a bunch of high acid varieties when I can one support growers to understand that what they have is worth something worth something beyond what they thought it was like turning into applesauce. Um, if I can pay a little bit more to keep those trees in the ground and keep those varieties interesting with the people who've been growing them for generations, um, then that's a win. So I don't want to discourage them from any of that. And so I generally look north um, to the Finger Lakes and to, to around Lake Ontario um, when I'm buying apples in New York State for those kind of varieties. I'm not necessarily looking up there for the high tannic varieties. We have some stuff up in the ground, up in, up in that area, some high tannic varieties, but it's mostly 
interesting high acid varieties like the Golden Russet, the, the Northern Spy, the Newtown Pippin. We, and I mean, we Angry Orchard and we, the cider industry, weren't buying that fruit, it probably would be gone. Like if, if this cider thing didn't happen, if Steve Wood and Ian Merwin and, and Liz Ryan weren't focused on getting cider out there, and, and, and you, can't, you can't talk about the early years without talking about Woodchuck, if those guys weren't getting cider out there and into people's mouths, it's highly likely that I wouldn't be talking to you about Northern Spy apples right now because they would just have be ripped out and they would have no value. Um, and, you know, we as cider makers, we know that and we want to, you know, well, at least the people that are thinking about these varieties and why they matter, we want them in the ground and we want people to see value in them and either keep them in the ground or put more in the ground. So talking about, you know, the fermentation, are you guys um, pitching yeast into these fermentations or is it entirely wild fermentation? Because, I mean, with with such a um, kind of interesting biodiversity you've got in your orchard, plus the uh, the atmosphere, the, just everything that goes along with the terroir, I can only imagine there's just like tons of yeast floating around in those orchards that, that might be beneficial to that ferment. Yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, I, I know I keep saying Cantillon, but like I just want people to think about it that way. Um, and it's something that like, I'm guessing a lot of your listeners understand and like people just generally get like with natty wines right now, for instance, all the rage. And it's just like, yo, we've been, cider's been natty for way longer. We've been super natty. We've been the nattiest. Um, and so I, yeah, we do pitch yeast certainly. Um, but, and I keep it very limited because I, I know what I want. I know what I want out of yeast when I'm buying it. Um, and so we use a very, very, very slim number of varieties and usually we'll use one that's like meant to build uh, mid palate and weight in a sort of high acid, no tannin or low tannin fermentation. And then we'll use another one that like accentuates tannin. Um, those are both wine yeasts. After that, we don't really pitch any yeast. So I'll try, we try, we'll trial, excuse me, we'll trial stuff all the time, but we'll trial stuff because it's interesting. Um, but you can also, you know, at this point you can, you sort of know what a yeast will, will likely do. Um, you'll work with a yeast provider that will tell you what it will do. And so like, I'm like, okay, well, I don't really care about whatever that one does. So, um, we were pretty set on yeast program. 75% of the cider we make in New York, we don't pitch any yeast on. Um, and so it's all wild, all wild. And it's true wild fermentation in the sense that, um, you know, our, we're in the middle of an orchard, 60 acres. We're right in the center of it. In the fall, our windows are open. We don't have a hot side. We only have a cold side. So the apples are coming off the or off the trees, literally off the trees into the cider house through the press, which is open air and cold side. So no heat to kill anything. It's pressed open air on a belt that's been there. Um, as much as you clean it, it you know, it, yeast, yeast and bacteria is still there. The walls are wood on, you know, on purpose. The walls are wood. Um, and the juice then goes into the tank completely full of everything it needs to do its job. Um, and then we, so does that help to kind of like give that house style? I mean, because that yeast is going to be different b between, um, cider maker to cider maker. So that, I mean, kind of gives you like that house flavor especially you know when, when you're in a, in a uh, kind of naturally fermented product rather than a distillate yeah i mean we're 
there certainly it, we do pitch yeast in the cellar, right? So like it's not that it, it doesn't come around and it, and it, it has to be in there. Um, however, it doesn't take away from the fact that all the things I just said are true and that there's natural yeast in all of it. Um, and in, in our first year in 2015, the season of 2015, um, for Walden, our first year of Walden, we didn't, pit, we didn't pitch any yeast, zero yeast. So we opened the windows, did everything I just said. We'd never pitched any commercial yeast, not once. And so we fermented all kinds of cider that year, never pitched a commercial yeast. Um, and so we, and we have these wood walls on purpose. We built a place that was going to capture that moment. Um, and while that ebbs and flows and changes and we have pitched yeast and I'm sure it's in the wood and in the air too, because you can't avoid that, you know, and that, but that's, even if we didn't pitch any yeast, that's also true. The wind changes, a building goes up, someone plants a plum orchard over there. Someone grows corn over. I mean, so it's always, nothing is static when it comes to yeast. Um, and so there is, there is, we do have a house character and I think some, some of it is reactive to our process. So it's how, what's going to tolerate what I do, you know, and what am I going to tolerate with it? Um, you know, I'm going to ferment at 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So only certain things are going to accept that and live through that. And the things that the bacteria that does and the yeast that does is what creates that house character, you know, ex you know, excluding what happens sort of down the line in aging or anything, but just that pure cider. So on your core, on your core products, you know, because you've got all these variables you need to control, right? I mean, the, the temperature of the summer, the, you know, the windiness, like you said, if somebody plants an orchard next door that, you know, you're getting any sort of yeast blown off that. So, I mean, you're also, you've got some core products that you're putting out that need to taste consistent from year to year to year to year. So is that kind of how you control the process by certain, you know, certain temperatures during your fermentation, kind of watching it? Cause you don't want too large of a fluctuation from year to year to year when you're not doing like a vintage bottle. Yeah. Core, core is like, is more dialed. Like I, I, I'm more involved in the process when, you know, if, if that makes sense, the, the more closer to like vintagey we get or the closer to natty we get the less I'm touching everything when it comes to core products, the more I'm touching everything, the more control there is. Um, and yeah, that's because of customer expect, you know, drinker expectation, um, and stability and all kinds of things I don't have to think about in a pet mat, $30 bottle of cider, you know, people get it, um, or I want them to get it, or, you know, at least people like, sort of get it. <laughs> right. um, so yeah, when it comes to, to the core products, you know, we're pitching that we're, we're not letting certain things in, um, we're controlling the process in different ways. Um, we, you know, there's filtration or pasteurization and all these kinds of things that like for the more like vintage products, we're not doing any, you know, we don't do any of it. We don't filter, we don't pasteurize, we don't do any of that stuff. So like, yeah, I mean, part of it is about meeting the drinker's expectation and, and, and consistency. And you have to think about all that stuff, especially when you're distributing on a national level. Um, I don't, you have to think about the consistency of the customer and the customer can be a lot of different people that could be at the bar, that could be at the restaurant, that could be at the grocery store. I'm not even at the drinker yet. You know, I mean, the wholesaler, all those people you have to like, you have to consider the way that they're going to react to things. So it is, I don't, I don't like to think about it as it is limiting 
it's just one of the ways that we make cider. Um, and, and I, and I'm proud of that. I think it's, it's great to get that. There is the, the largest of the drinker base wants the consistency. Right. And it, I mean, when you're doing, going for that, so you're talking about, uh, are, are you fermenting all these batches and kind of blending it at some point with, um, you know, to kind of create that stability and that consistent product? Cause you've got a lot of, you had a lot of variables. <laughs> yeah. Everything is about blending. I mean, that's like the, the, the way you ferment and the way you blend is, is your, is your, are your fingerprints. And like, I, I change that depending on what I'm making and what the end goal is and who the drinker is going to be. Um, so when you're fermenting, uh, when you're doing a blend, are you fermenting various, um, varieties together or are they being fermented separately and then blended later? So usually, um, usually I will ferment, a, I will blend at apple. That's the way I really like to do things. I like to go into a tank with my blend. So I'll have picked three or four varieties for tannin and, you know, a variety or two for high acid. And maybe if I need it, um, something with a, you know, an elevated sugar to get a little bit more alcohol. And then I go into tank that way and ferment that way. I do that because some of the other things I like to do require it. And I like the stability that like having that tannin and having that acid in there gives me throughout a fermentation. I would say 99% of the time, that's how I do things. However, it depends sometimes like in, a, in this, this particular year because of so many things. Um, but mostly because, you know, we've got a tasting room that more or less is hard empty. to, <laughs> yeah, it's empty. Um, everything's outside. We have very limited capacity. We're, we're full. We're, our capacity is full through the rest of the month, which is awesome. But that's a difference of thousands of people actually, which is awful I'm, by the day, you know? And so a lot of the cider that we're talking about here that I'm really excited about is that kind of cider that requires that hand sell and that, that, you know, that storytelling, which we're just like not able to do right now. You know, people can come and order their cider ahead of time and sit down and, you know, get table service, but they can't come inside. And, um, I don't think, you know, we were about to start letting people inside, but I'm not, you know, in New York state, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not going to be able to happen much longer. So we may not be welcoming people inside this year. Um, I hope that's not true. Now, those kind of uh, more interesting hand cell ciders, are, do they go out apart from uh, your tasting room, like into, you know, yes. more upscale restaurants? I, I do remember having a meal many years ago. I think I was at uh, Eva Jose Andres out in Vegas. And if I remember right, I believe the final course was paired with a cider. And, and so, and it's definitely, you know, it was served in a wine glass. Uh, I believe it was sparkling. Um, but you know, it was treated as though, you know, I mean, that was the final course where they really kind of bring out the big guns and, and it was a European cider, but it was kind of eye opening to me, you know, because you don't often see that kind of in, uh, included in, uh, as part of like your normal, uh, train of thought and, and, and kind of consciousness as far as what it equates to an elevated or fine dining meal. And, and I was like, oh, wow. You know, I, it's just, it's always been kind of an area that I, it, in my peripheral vision that I don't. Yeah. Get, you know, I mean, it took me a really long time to understand a lot of things about wine and it's almost like starting over with cider again, because it's very similar in that way. I, I know nothing about these apples, you know, and what they bring to the table. And so it's really interesting. I'm really fascinated with your, like the single varietal stuff and the vintage stuff that you're doing. It's, it's very eye opening. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's fun to do. And it, because of what's going on, you know, we, we are doing some like 
we have some stuff left over that we normally wouldn't have left over from the year before. And so we're doing like, we're doing just tannic fermentations right now um, and blending it with last year's acid. Um, this is something we don't normally do, but I think ultimately it's going to be fucking cool and it'll be fun and we'll celebrate it. As far as the restaurants go, um, yes, we do, we do distribute the cider mostly to friends, um, no, only to friends really, um, across the country, um, at different restaurants, you know, so you might see some of the cider that we make in Walden show up at like Ned Ludd out in Portland or Mabel Gray in Detroit, um, Gramercy Tavern down in New York. We, you know, these are, these are chefs and restaurant groups that we become, you know, we're just friends with because we love what they do and we bring them cider and they're like, oh shit, can we get that? And we'll like at basically any expense, get it to them. Um, and, and I love to hear that you had cider at a Jose Andres place because um, Jose is from originally Asturias, Spain, uh, which is to me, the motherland of, of, of cider. Uh, their cider making style is something that like I've aspired to since the day I got into cider. I, I've, I've made the worst of cider that could be even sort of related, like 10 cousins away. Cider that I've had spit out on my feet by Spanish cider makers, literally, like this has nothing <laughs> to, to do with Spanish cider, to like now making something that is, in my opinion, and, you know, more or less, you know, the same, um, in an American way, the same as the ciders of Spain. And Jose Andres has been a, a really big supporter of cider. I, mean, I bet you drank Eric Bordelais cider from, from Brittany, France or Normandy, I can't remember which place he's from, but um, that's usually what shows up in the fine dining restaurants. And it's great cider. And it's cider that the wine drinker can understand and like taste. It is like a very high level of cider making. It's a very pristine and perfect style of cider making, Eric Borley cider. Um, and I, I, it is the cider that I run into at like the finer dining places pretty regularly. And that's great to see. He's, he's been really smart about that. So I, we've, we're about, what, about 10 years into kind of this resurgence of interest in, in cider making now. I mean, where, what are we looking forward to the future is how the industry builds? Do you think that we're getting to a point where you're going to start to see kind of the um, splintering like we've seen in craft beer where, you know, you've got um, cider houses that are, that'll concentrate solely on kind of doing the esoteric, the interesting, well, like, you know, like we talked about Josh earlier, you know, the brewery he worked at, he did lots of crazy kind of one-off stuff. Um, I, you know, you, you've got to kind of take it in steps. And right now I feel like we're still building a client base, you know, so that we can have a little more fun in 10 years, you know, is, is, is there a splintering that's to happen? Yeah. Yes. Really moving on the shelves right now is fruit cider. So cider plus, yes, as I like to, uh, they're you know. moving a lot. We've got some on, on the menu. Yeah. People go crazy for them and they're not necessarily the best representation. It's certainly not the craft that you're putting forth. Yeah, I mean, it, it is people. Pe Shrug. Pe people are people are into it, and so like I have my purest feelings, and then I have my hospitality feelings. And I think if it brings people into the category that I love, then I'm excited about it. And I hope that I hope they're not fly by night on the category, and that we can pull them in and show them all the things that cider can be. Um, like, do I want to drink a hop cider right now? No. Um, but have I drunk a good one? Yes. You know, so like it can all be good. I just want it to be good. Um, so right now what's selling and keeping the lights on at most people's places is the fruit, fruit cider. I don't think it's sustainable 
because it's flavor of the week type shit. So today it's pine. Yeah. Today it's pineapple tomorrow. It's whatever. Um, it doesn't matter. It does. It just doesn't matter. And that's the thing I don't kind of, I really don't like about it. It's just like, it just doesn't matter. Um, yeah, and, the trendiness kind of goes in and out. And- yeah. And so I, I, I love, I, I know that beyond that sort of introductory cider level, there is an, there's an industry of amazing shit going on. And I don't see that going away. I measure that by looking at the nurseries that grow the apples that interested cider makers want. Um, and I mean the interested cider makers who are interested in traditional cider varieties and therefore cider making. Um, they're sold out year on year. So these trees are going in the ground. I know that. I don't need to even talk to a cider maker to ask them. I know it's happening. Um, and I know it's happening next year because I'm one of the people that is trying to buy those apples too. And I can, I can only get as much as I can get because the rest of it's gone. And the year after that, I also know that. So for the next couple of years, I know more and more of these traditional cider apple varieties are going in the ground. I'm participating in that and cider makers across the country are, and they're making ciders out of those varieties. So it's being put out into the world for people to drink. Um, and so I think we will see a continued uh, interest and a movement towards that kind of cider making. And that is exciting to me. Um, I think it's a while before that becomes the way that I think it's a while before people are going to drink a new Tom Pippin cider, the way they drink a Pinot Noir. I do think that's the ultimate goal though. And I do think it's possible. And I know that there's people dedicated to that idea, um, that would die for that idea. And I'm one of them. And, and I know a lot of other people that are too. And so I think there'll be a split, as you said, it'll continue to be that way. There'll be this sort of call it innovation space where there's new shit happening every five days with new flavors and new colors. And that's just the way it is, man. And it's true of beer and it's true of wine. It's true of everything. Yeah. And it's true of cider. And like, I used to buck that shit as much as I possibly could. And like, it's just not a way to win. And it's, it's, it's also an, it's also an exclusive way to be. And like, I don't want to be exclusive. I just don't like, I want some exclusive shit, you know, like I want to go eat at unbelievable restaurants and I want to go to unbelievable places and I want to try unbelievable, unattainable things, but I don't necessarily want to create a space that is exclusive. You know, I want to bring people in and, you know, so like my flagship ciders, they do that. And I meet more people because of it. I have more conversations because of it. I eat different kinds of food. It's just different. I just have a different experience and I welcome and celebrate that experience. And I hope that I can continue to get to do that. I mean, it's just like, why would I deny, um, why would I deny that's where the, the hospitality kicks yeah, in? Yeah. Why would I deny the fruit cider drinker who has a, you know, I don't have some, you know, family recipe that they, that they cook at some stand in outside of Austin, Texas, when I'm down there for some other cider thing. And like, why wouldn't I want to hang out with that person and like get to see their perspective on something? I, I want that. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's often they always have to have those baby steps or those like kind of gateway drugs, you know, yeah. and, I mean, in cocktails, it's always vodka or the Moscow mule, you know, and then we can take hop skips and jumps, but I am glad that you, you mentioned, you know, the kind of nurseries being sold out because I know you're, you're short on time and we've got to wrap up here today, but you know, um, 
it's it's actually it's a, it's kind of a selfish question as well because again we talked about at the top of the show um, you know I've been kind of looking at something to plant in, in my own yard I, I finally have a little bit of land and I've never had that before so it's pretty exciting but you know if people want to you know look at putting fruit trees because I, I see that trend coming back right like for so long everybody's been planting trees that have been bred to not fruit you know we want the pear trees that don't fruit you know the bradford pear and all that that people are putting in their yards for the for the foliage but you don't get the fruit and so i'm starting to see a swing back the other way where people want to have that fruit back in the yard um you know are there varieties out there that like you would recommend obviously there's it's zone specific for for our listeners um which we encourage everybody to check that out you know make sure you you do that the right way before you you, do, you kill a tree but you know something that you know you could eat or you could make cider out of because not everybody's a cider maker um and not everybody you know uh only wants to eat eat the apples so i mean is there are there varieties that kind of play both sides of the fence yeah there are but first off why the fuck would you plant a fruiting tree that doesn't fruit <laughs> what the fuck is i know people? i know the first time I, I i bought a house uh well the first time i bought a house i've only lived in two houses but like there was a a bradford pear in the front and i was like oh cool a pear tree i didn't know anything about it i was like ah right on pears and they're like oh no 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 it, it doesn't give you fruit. yeah it just like, leaves it doesn't <laughs> right yeah very strange and it's, and it's quite popular here in indiana i know across the united states it is but definitely in indiana well well so speaking of the midwest um there's a variety that comes out of purdue it's called gold rush and it was out of their breeding program 60s or 70s, I, I don't remember anymore. Um, but it was meant to compete with the Golden Delicious apple. It did not compete with the Golden Delicious apple. It tasted too good, and it didn't. It doesn't. It didn't and doesn't look good on the grocery store shelf. It'll russet, you know, sort of like a potato, little spot, like sort of rough, like textured spots, and. Sanding paper was the word I was looking for. So it sort of looks like sandpaper. We call it russeting. That variety more or less was on the extinction list and cider makers started to get their hands on it. It will produce a cider that has, well, the apple, it grows in that, the tree grows an apple that has really high sugar. So we can push like high sugars, like bricks. I, we speak in bricks, but for the brewing community, Plato, which is basically the same number, you know, 16, 17 in a good year. It's crazy, especially in a year where like you get a, a nice warm fall and you can keep the apples on the tree for a long time and really get that sugar development. We can get crazy bricks out of these apples. They store very well and they're very disease resistant. So for a home grower who wants to grow apples that they could also, and oh, by the way, it's like one of the best eating apples that you could possibly imagine. It's like um, all the things that you get in a grocery store apple, but on like Mars, it's like really hot, <laughs> like very sweet, but crazy acidity. So it's just like drink. It's like eating honey basically with acid or eating honey on acid. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 I was, uh, I was going to avoid that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> and it, it grows really well. It's very easy to grow. And so I think as a home grower, it can be like, you have to really want to get into like home orcharding to understand spray and you know all the things that you have to do to maintain an orchard but the gold rush is pretty disease resistant and you can get them out of a nursery a home a home app a person that's interested in growing some apples at home for eating and or cider making um, could find a gold rush apple can plant the gold rush apple tree and can get results out of it and i think it's one of the best 
Um, it's, it's one of my favorite apples to make cider out of and also eat and also to grow in my own yard because I don't have to do shit to get, um, apples out of it. Not really, you know, I have to prune it. I have to take care of it. I might have to like get some caterpillars out of it a couple times a summer, but after that, I don't really have to do anything. And so it's encouraging to plant that tree because you can get results. A lot of the time, you know, back to the beginning of the conversation, if you take a red delicious apple and make cider out of it and it tastes like shit, you might not ever make cider again because you're like, why does this suck? I drank cider that's made professionally and it's good. This sucks. And whereas beer, you follow this recipe, you have your, you can get all the ingredients. You can get the best hops that the most cutting edge brewers are using at the homebrew store now, all the ingredients, and you can make killer beer by just following a recipe. With cider, it's, it's a little bit further afield. Excuse the pun there, but um, if you if you if you get some apple varieties in your backyard that are easy to grow, that you get good results out of, and you can make a decent cider, you know you might be the next cider maker, and that's what that's what matters about all this stuff is like keep this shit alive, keep the fire burning. The fire has to be kept burning. So for those of our listeners out there that want to do that, uh, where can everybody um, hunt you down to apply for a job? <laughs> you have social media. <laughs> um, but yeah. we do have social media for Angry Orchard. We want to point people into your direction because you do are, are doing some really interesting things. How can people find you guys online? Yeah, so if, if you want to find me, I'm at Ryan James Burke. Um, if you want to find Angry Orchard Walden, which is our cider house, um, at Angry Orchard Walden. And then our national um, handle is just at Angry Orchard. And yeah, there's different stories across all that. Yeah, we love to show what we're, what we're up to. And as far as some of the more limited stuff, um, we, obviously you can find Angry Orchard in, in uh, packaged liquor stores all over the United States and your favorite bars and restaurants. Um, are some of the more limited things available for purchase online? No. Well. Or is it only allocated to friends? <laughs> a little bit out in the world on shelves here and there, but that's not worth like pointing people to it. You can obviously come to see us and pick it up. Um, we have been spending this year building out a cider club um, where we will ship like a wine club. Um, that should go live in February of 2021. And I, that's coming up soon guys. Pay attention here. That's that's soon. Yeah. The details will be on, um, on all of our handles. I'm so excited about it because these ciders just like, don't see the light of the day very often. And so um, we can't ship to every state because rules and laws and stuff, but we can ship to most states. And yeah, it'll, once we are ready to go, it'll be on, on our handles. Um, and I encourage people that want to try something really cool that has a ton of heart and soul in it to sign up. Um, and I, I hope to get the cider, you know, in, in, on people's tables and in their glasses. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put, um, links to all the social media and the websites in the show notes. So we want everybody to click through there and, you know, we're sitting down in late November just before Thanksgiving doing this. So if you're listening to the show in, in the future, uh, you know, get, jump on the cider club. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show, Ryan. It's been super cool. I could sit here for the next two hours and pick your brain about apples, you know, the production of it. But um, it's, it's a fascinating topic. And I know we just scratched the surface. Um, I'd love to have you on the show again at some point. We'd get a little bit deeper into it. It's definitely a topic that I, I need to educate myself more about. And uh, I think you've opened up a lot of avenues for myself to, like, you know, explore today. And we definitely encourage everybody out there listening to do the same. And, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, we haven't done it in a long time. But we were chit-chatting a little bit. So as we wrap up the show, I always like to ask, um, you know, or I used to, we, we've kind of fallen out of the habit. you have any hangover cures that we need to know about? 
You know, we've been <laughs> we've been kind of collecting them over the last three years. We've gotten some interesting ones. That it's some, it's tough. I, and the older I get, the harder the cures. You know, they don't do anything anymore. I don't think they. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I know it. I'm turning forty this May, and I'm pretty oh, sure man. They, they. I'm just a few years older than you, but it gets worse. Yeah. It just. Uh, yeah, I used to have like a hangover kit where I take like my antacids, Advil, Xanax, and just like all the things. I wake up, put it in, drink some water, Gatorade, done. I was okay by the time I woke up, but none of that works anymore. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Um, to highlight a moment that you brought up strains, um, there's some strains <laughs> that work and yeah. then I think there's also, um, well, you're in I a medically legal state. Uh, you're allowed to I, discuss. So, uh, I mean, what strain do, what strains I, I do, do you I think have, kind of help? I, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bite my lip on that, but I, I do have my card. Um, um, I think that, um, we haven't done any episodes like that, but I'm, a, I, I have made no secret of my support of legalization of cannabis across the board. And in Indiana, we, um, we don't have any, even medical. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just dumb. No secret for <laughs> you, know, it's for just me, dumb for me either. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I, I look forward to the wholesale change that I believe is coming. Um, and I hope it's done in an equitable way for, for people that have been affected with the bullshit yes um, yeah people over, serving over. you know lifetime prison sentences for you know an herb so i think that's um a way and i think a good breakfast man i want some you know greasy fried eggs and i hopefully you know hopefully a sleep in hopefully a little bit of a, a sleep in um and then a really good breakfast and you know you should be all right there you go all right wake up smoke a joint eat a big fat <laughs> breakfast and go back to bed that sounds like a plan to me. Well, Ryan, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. We'll definitely touch base here soon again. Uh, and, and for everybody out there that wants to check it out, everything's in the show notes. Thank you for coming on the show. Cheers, yeah, sir. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Cheers to you. 